Hello, this is Tim, the lead pastor of Mosaic Portland, and welcome to the Mosaic Portland podcast. We exist to follow Jesus in authentic community for the world. And right now we're gathering Sundays online uh, to worship together and to open up scripture together. And then after that, we have virtual house gatherings that meet all over our city. And the great thing about these is that you can actually join in wherever you're listening from. We think these right now are the best way to be known, to connect with others, uh, and to be on mission together. They're also where we pray together on Sundays in smaller communities, where we take communion together and debrief what the talk was about and engage scripture more. If you want to find out more information of how to be a part of one in this season, you can find out more info on our website, mosaicportland.org. Now let's go to scripture together as we listen to this podcast. Hi, I'm Tim. We're continuing on in our series, Words Fall Short. And what we're doing is we're exploring the glory of God. And as we've, we've several weeks into this now, and we're just looking at different places in scripture uh, that explores the glory of God, the, the glory of God is God revealing himself. And we've looked at a number of different things, the goodness of God, that God reveals himself in scripture. Uh, last week, we looked at a number of different places in the book of Exodus where God shows up and reveals himself. And so we're going to continue that today. I want to go back to the beginning of our series. And I used to quote from a guy named Brennan Manning, who's just a, a fascinating guy, but um, without going into who he is. I just want us to listen to these words again because he so well captures how who God is is beyond what we can describe. And so it's in a book of his called Ruthless Trust. Listen to these words. No thought can contain him. No word can express him. He transcends all human concepts, considerations, and expectations. He is the beyond in our midst and though in our midst, still beyond anything we can, now catch this, intellectualize or imagine. Intellectualize or imagine that who God is and his glory is, is beyond us. And we've, we've come back to that week after week. And so um, as, we, as we walk through what it means that our words fall short of who God, God is, that we're exploring and seeking to experience God in all of his glory. That's our desire and our longing. So I want to invite you as we, as we look at a, a text in, in the Bible today, we're going to do a, a couple things. One, I think one way that is really helpful for us to explore, and to, as, as Brandon Manning just said, not to, to, to go beyond intellectualizing or trying to even fully capture who God is, is to look at the lyrics of songs, that song lyrics actually have a way of drawing us out and engaging us in different ways. So I want us to look at some song lyrics. I want us to, to listen and, and to learn a little bit about uh, a really old guy. Um, he's what's called an early church father, really, really old. I want us to look at something that he said. And then lastly, uh, I want to talk briefly about something that your phone is involved in. It's I'm pretty sure it's not a conspiracy theory, but something that your phone is involved in. So those three things, the song lyrics, a really old guy, and, and your phone. If you've got a Bible, find your way to Psalm 29. Psalm 29 is written by a guy named David, and David is one of these just dynamic, weird, wonderful characters that we read about in the story of God in Scripture. And David was a shepherd. He uh, was a giant killer, killed Goliath. He was a, a king. Uh, he, uh, unfortunately, was a, a womanizer, uh, a murderer. He was a son. He was a, was a husband although not a really good one a lot of the time. He was a, a father, although not a really good one some of the time. Um, he played the harp. He was multi-talented. Uh, he wrote a lot of the Psalms. And so I want to look at one of his, and he writes this, essentially a song, a piece of poetry, where he's trying to capture the glory of God. Psalm 29, let's, let's look at it together. Psalm 29 says this, a Psalm of David. 
Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness or the beauty of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forests bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. I want to stop short of reading the last verse. There's 11 verses. We just read 10 of them together. What, what David is doing here is he's describing a storm. The guy, the, the David is, is saying, the, the, the one thing that I can reach for, that I can kind of use human words, and obviously he wrote in a very different language than ours, but as we read it in English, English words trying to paint a picture, trying to grasp in some way the immensity of God's glory. And he uses a, a storm to do that. And if you, we've probably all experienced a storm in, in some way. I, I know that in our home right now when there's a the, the thunder uh, when we hear thunder I often walk to the window and look out as if I can see something and I'm often looking for lightning right to, to see that afterwards but thunder and lightning is what David is describing here and if you can imagine David's kind of sitting in the middle of Israel and if you don't know where Israel is geographically it's this really kind of thin uh, piece of territory in the Middle East but roughly in the middle David is sitting in Jerusalem and he's writing this and he's trying to describe the the glory of God and he he looks out and it would be kind of over this direction into the Mediterranean of a, of a storm coming off of the water. And above uh, Israel is Lebanon, and above that is, or off to the side is uh, uh, Syria. Um, ab above further is Turkey. Below is Egypt. Off to the side is Saudi Arabia and Jordan. Uh, today, as we look on a map, and, and, and David describes this storm coming off of the Mediterranean to the land of Israel. And then he, he actually moves from the north all the way to the south and just describes a storm hitting through. And what he's trying to grasp at is that when we hear the thunder, even when we, not, not just the thunder that David's hearing, when we've ever heard thunder, we have a sense of how small we are and how big that is. And even with that, we can scientifically explain how the sound of thunder comes and then how lightning comes and, and, and how those work together and the timing of all of those that we can understand in some small way. We still feel small. We still feel that that is way beyond us and big. And David actually walks through and says, the glory of God makes me feel small. The glory of God is powerful, like a storm coming to the land that I know and love and that I've always lived in. And as that has happened, as we see that, that is grasped in some small way the immensity of God's glory. And he describes thunder and then he describes the glory of God, the, the voice of God breaking cedars, the cedars of Lebanon, he describes. And those are, those are famous in the Mediterranean world and uh, in, in ancient times in particular. And, and they eventually, a lot of them, most of them were cut down and used to, to build ships for, for battle and for fighting other nations. And, but cedars of, Le of Lebanon actually had this, this physical representation of power, this physical representation of longevity. They endured forever. 
And David describes that image that we have that we can walk up to and touch. We can touch a cedar. It's massive trunk. It goes up 100, 120 feet. These huge, enormous trees. But the voice of God shatters those. It splits them. Later on, in, in later verses, it says it, it strips the, the forest bare. But he talks about Lebanon, and then he moves down south, what is, what is now in, in Egypt. But it's where um, earlier generations from David, Moses, walked around with the people. We looked at Exodus last week and how God revealed himself to the, the people of Israel early on when Moses was leading them. But he refers to Kadesh and what's going on down there. And, he, and way down there, the, the storm comes and strips the forest bare describes how animals respond when there's a storm, when animals respond to thunder and lightning and how immense it is. David is describing a storm. And then he gets to the end and in verse 10, he says this, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. And flood's an interesting word. Like when we say flood or when we read flood, even in scripture, you maybe think of the the flood in, in Genesis. And that's exactly what this is actually pointing to. That when, when it says that, that the Lord sits enthroned over the flood, that word there in this psalm isn't used anywhere else in scripture except between Genesis 6 and 11. And Genesis 6 and 11 tells the story of Noah and the flood. And so David is writing of a storm that he has heard, that he's experienced. And yet he says, that's like God's voice. That's like God's presence. That's like God's power is when a massive storm comes. But even more than that, even than the storms that I've experienced in my life, David is saying, is I know that God in all of his glory sits enthroned over the flood that we know about in generations past. That the most supreme example, that the most powerful example, the most all-encompassing example of God ushering in nature to do something that he desires was the flood. And so he points back into his history and says, God sits enthroned over that. He is that powerful. There's something that's difficult to read in that and to realize that that's what David's pointing to is because that flood was a flood of, of judgment. That God was actually judging the world and saying, you are living humanity in a way that you're not intended to. And so I'm going to do a restart with Noah. And David is pointing back and saying that God is that powerful. And even in that, there's a reflection, as, as hard as this might be for us to, to understand and grasp this, of his goodness. But David is saying, the God who can flood the whole entire earth sits enthroned above all of it. And these are still just reaches to how glorious God really is. We don't quite grasp it. We can't fully imagine it. We certainly can't intellectualize it. But we want to know it and experience it. And even in the threat of a storm, David is saying, I know that God is good and powerful and bigger than all of this. This isn't even as powerful as God is. That's what David is doing. Before we go back, there's, a, there's two verses, and, and, and David writes something in these lyrics in verses one and two. But before we do that, I want us to, to kind of visit with a really old guy, and he's called an early church father. Uh, his name is uh, Irenaeus, and Irenaeus lived in the second century, and he wrote, and he's most well-known for, well, he was a, uh, the leader of a church in, in France, but he, he's most well-known for a work that was produced, that was published in uh, 
185, 185 AD. Uh, and Irenaeus writes this, this work that is called Against Heresies. Um, that's quite a title for a book. There's a, there's a longer title for it, actually, um, that describes it more. But that's the simple title for it, is Against Heresies. And if, if you kind of want, what, what was he writing about? Uh, he was writing to combat an idea and a way of thinking that led to a way of living that was counter to following Jesus. And so when we hear the word heresy, that word heresy actually means against kind of a, a, a belief system. And primarily when we hear heresy, we're, we're talking about uh, something that's counter to either the Christian faith, um, Judaism, or Islam. Those are the major world monotheistic faiths, and heresy is something that, that drifts from one of those. And, and Irenaeus is writing specifically about the Christian faith and heresies that go against the Christian faith. Now hang on for this, because it's a little complicated, but it's worth understanding, because he's a pretty amazing guy, and what he has to write is really, really helpful for us today. But Irenaeus is writing, and against heresies, he's writing against a thing called Gnosticism. And I know you logged in this morning to watch and to listen to this, and to say, good, I hope we learn something about Gnosticism, and you're welcome. Here you go. What is Gnosticism? Gnosticism is this, this belief, and it, and it takes a bunch of different forms, and it evolves throughout history. But when Irenaeus is writing, what he's writing about is a way of thinking and believing about the material world that said that, that this material world, what we experience, our bodies, uh, land, waves, trees, things that we can build, the physical reality that we live in isn't good. It's all evil. And it was all created kind of by accident by this God with a lowercase g. Kind of an evil one, too. Not a super powerful one, but powerful enough to create. But he kind of did it on accident, and this is what we have, and it's all not good. Life is hard. Life is confusing. We don't know which way forward. This is all in the first and second century. But there's, there, the belief system of Gnosticism said there's a lowercase g God who's not a great God, and he accidentally made this existence that I'm in. And so I need an escape. I need a way to get out. And the way to get out is to find this secret or mysterious knowledge that a few people have. And if I can grasp that and understand that with my mind, I can escape from this world. And this world doesn't matter anyways. And so what I do in this world actually doesn't really matter. I can kind of do whatever I want because I'm going to escape and find this rescue in this mysterious knowledge that a few people have. Does any of this sound familiar? There are hints of Gnosticism in our world, in our culture, all over the place today. Little pieces, little chunks. This kind of thinking works really well if you're writing the script for the next Marvel movie, where you need superheroes and different worlds and good and evil and all of that, and it all kind of makes sense or doesn't make sense, or maybe we have to jump back and forth in time. And all Gnosticism is great for that if that's what you're creating and writing. But, like Irenaeus said, and as I would say today, it doesn't actually match up with our reality today, and it certainly doesn't match up with what Scripture says. And so Irenaeus writes about heresies to combat that. And what he does is he writes this, is puts together kind of the first full Christian, let's say, theology of all of our beliefs of what the Bible has to say. The Bible wasn't even in print then, but yet he quotes these letters that the early followers of Jesus had written that soon would be put together in what we have today in Scripture. Now, Irenaeus is able to look at Gnosticism and say this is not true to reality for a couple reasons. But perhaps the most important is that he was mentored by a guy named Polycarp. And Polycarp, who mentored Irenaeus back in Turkey where, where Irenaeus grew up and was born, Polycarp knew a guy named John. He was friends with a guy named John. And John's dad's name, catch this, was Zebedee. 
pretty unique name. Polycarp's friend John's friend, his dad's name was Zebedee, which meant that John had an older brother named James. And James and John were the number third and number fourth disciples that a guy named Jesus called and said, come follow me, right after he did so to Peter and to his brother Andrew. Those are the first four disciples. And John goes on to become the beloved disciple. And he goes to write things that we have in scripture now. John, first, second, third John, Revelation. John was friends with Polycarp, and Polycarp mentored Irenaeus, and Irenaeus was able to look and say, John, who's friends with Polycarp, actually walked with Jesus and knew Jesus, and he hung out with him, and he ate a meal of fish after Jesus had been killed on the cross, buried in the tomb, conquered death, rose again, and was alive and walking around eating fish with John and a bunch of other of his friends. And he saw him heal people, and he saw him teach, and he saw him on a hill one day say, hey, go be my disciples and make disciples of all their people. I'm going back to heaven, but I'm sending somebody to be with you, the Holy Spirit. That is John. John experienced all of that. And Irenaeus is able to say, you know what? I have a friend named Polycarp who knows John, who knew Jesus. And so I have a direct line and can almost reach back and touch Jesus, although I didn't know Jesus and didn't walk with Jesus. And I'm born way later and I'm writing later, later but... I know people who knew Jesus, and I know for a fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And because Jesus rose from the dead, he's God in the flesh. There's a sense of God's glory come in the person of Jesus that other places in Scripture we have claimed to. And because of that, he can look at agnosticism and say, no, this world has a lot of problems, but it was created good. And it matters, and you matter, and you're actually valuable. And you don't have to find your own escape from this world and way of coping in this world, but... Because Jesus entered into this world. The God of the universe came into what he created through all of his flaws and all of the presence of sin and came to redeem it and put it back together. The fact that Irenaeus knows that, believes that, and can write that. And in these writings, he pens this phrase, this sentence that maybe you've heard before, but if you haven't, hear it for the first time. He writes this so significant thing that we can, that we can claim and we can know is true. And he says this, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. It's, it's actually not exactly what he wrote when he first wrote it. And the early language it was, was both Latin and, and in Greek. But if we look back at those early translations of it's not fully alive, we have this sense of, well, we've got to live life to the fullest, which is a good and worthy thing. And yet that's not what Irenaeus is talking about. Irenaeus is saying the glory of God is a living human being. Think about that for a moment. The glory of God that we can't fully intellectualize or imagine, the glory of God who is beyond us and transcendent, the glory of God that we can only hope to explore and experience a little bit of, that glory of God is in a living human being, in you and in me. That's not the end of what Irenaeus says. There's a comma there. And he goes on and he says, the life of a human being consists of the vision of God or consists of beholding God. What Irenaeus is saying is that the glory of God shows up in me and in you when we have a vision of God, when we actually behold God, when we see and observe who God is, not in all, we can't in all of who he is, but we get glimpses of when we stare at, when we look for, when we pay attention to, when we set our minds on the glory of God, on who God is then we become alive. Listen to the first two verses again that David wrote in his song of Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. 
Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in splendor of his holiness. Ascribe is a word that we don't use that often, and if you do, you probably sound a little weird. It's, it's a fancy way of saying give. Give God the glory due him. Give. In order to do that, what we actually have to do is we find ourselves looking at God and paying attention to God to look at God, to ascribe to God who he is. When Irenaeus writes, the life of a human being consists in the vision of God, what he's saying to is that we, we turn our eyes to God, that we set our minds to God. He's actually echoing the words uh, that Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. Listen to this. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Listen. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind set, the mind governed, the one who pays attention to the Holy Spirit, the one who pays attention to the words of Jesus, the one who pays attention to the voice of God, the one who seeks the glory of God, what happens is life and peace. And David starts his psalm with give your attention to God because his glory demands it and is worthy of it. Pay attention to God. Worship God. And then he ends the verse that we didn't read. The very end, verse 11 of, of Psalm 29 ends with this. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. The very thing that Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 6, the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. David ends with saying, the Lord blesses his people with peace. When we turn our lives, our attentions, our hearts, our hands, our minds toward God and give him attention, we're then shaped by that. I love what the neuro, uh, scientist, neuropsychologist uh, Kurt Thompson says in his book, Soul of Shame, which is a phenomenal book if you haven't read and struggled with shame. We're going to talk a little bit about shame next week and how it relates to glory. But the, in, in his book, The Soul of Shame, he, he actually he, he says this. Ultimately, we become what we pay attention to and the options available to us at any time are myriad. Listen to that again. Kurt Thompson in The Soul of Shame says this, ultimately we become what we pay attention to and the options available to us at any time are myriad. Here's a, a neuroscientist, a neuropsychologist saying what scripture actually says. When you pay attention to the spirit, when you seek the glory of God, when you're mindful of the things that Jesus is calling you to and who he is, you're then shaped by that because that's who you are paying attention to. When Irenaeus says it in 185 AD, and he says, real life, where the glory of God is evident, consists in a person having a vision of God, beholding God, looking and observing God, that that is where life comes from. And then that's where peace comes from. We're shaped by that. And so here's where we need to talk about our phones. Something your phone is involved in. And we know this. I'm not telling you anything new. I hope I'm not. Is that your phone is involved in shaping you. And not just your phone, but any screen you look at. Or any book that you read. Or anything that you read. Or listen to. Or watch. Is involved in shaping you. That's not a conspiracy theory. 
yet it might be actually a conspiracy theory of what you're being shaped by. That could be. You, you could be really into conspiracy theories right now, and that's what cons is consuming you, and you're actually being shaped by that. That is becoming you in some way. It's affecting your mind in the way that you think and talk to people and the way that you feel, because what we pay attention to shapes us. And we know this, that our phones and our screens and what we read and watch shape us. And so what if we were to seek the kind of life and peace that God desires for us by paying attention to him more? It will involve us training our eyes and our minds and what we set it on. One of the things that I've been doing, and I've shared this before, but um, I've been, I was shocked, oh, this was about a year and a half ago, at how many websites and new things I could read in the morning before I got out of bed. When I wake up in the morning, I could grab my phone and start scrolling through, and whether it started with something like ESPN and moved to some kind of news or report or whatever it was that was the beginning thing of the day, of all of the things that I could read and would race through my mind before I even really started my day. And those things were beginning to shape the course of my day and the way that I would think and feel and interact with others. And so what I've started doing is before I look at anything on my phone, I'll take time to read scripture in the morning, just a little bit for... Uh, 15 to 20 minutes to start my day and go, I'm in a reading plan that I've talked about before, which has been great, redoing the one I did last year. But what if you were to take time at the beginning of the day to set your mind and to let your mind be covered by the things of God, to reach for a little bit of vision of the glory of God that then shapes us through our day. Our phones are involved in shaping who we are. Two last things really quickly, and then I want to pray together before we sing. Two other things that we, that demand our attention, that call for our attention. One of those is, is pain and grief and struggle and doubt. That, that maybe the phone is the least of your worries in your life right now because pain is so real to you. I was sharing with a friend recently, uh, the, the most painful thing that I've experienced in the last few years is the loss of a friend and mentor, uh, Paul Rhodes. And I, I described it as a, it was like somebody had taken, emotionally had taken two symbols and just crashed them over my head. And emotionally it was just ringing and I couldn't make sense of which way it was up. One of the things that Paul was so influential in my life in was regardless of what I was experiencing is, it was calling my eyes and my heart to be oriented towards God and to, to look to him. And as I did that, I'm reminded of throughout scripture, the lives that we have represented in scripture are consistent in bringing their difficulty, pain, and grief to God. There is more than enough loss in this season, in 2020 and in 2021. There is grief that some of us are dealing with and others of us are denying. There is doubts and questions that we're having about who God is and if, is he good or is he not? And so those things long for our attention. And so would we not let go of those, but would we bring those, but take our eyes off of just looking at those and being consumed by that and having the courage and the risk of faith to look to God and say, I'm, I'm gonna look to you. I love what C.S. Lewis says in The Problem of Pain. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he, he shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God reaching out to a deaf world, trying to get a deaf world's attention. Let's not be a deaf world, even in our pain, that we would say, God, what is it that you're saying to me in this? And the last one is this. One of the things that pulls our minds and our attention is, is our schedules and our busyness. And as I say that, you might be saying, well, you don't know how many kids I have right at home. I'm trying to keep on screens and trying to balance everything else. And 
all that this new world means for us. And yet, for God's creation, his human beings that he's created, that he calls into a life of peace, he's designed this thing called Sabbath, and there's so much behind that. But what he desires for us is even in the midst of our craziness, that we find a way to get a rest and to not let the busyness of this world, both the things that are impressed upon us and the things that we choose to dominate our life. So whether it's a phone or a screen or what you're paying attention to, whether it's the pain or grief in your life or whether it's busyness, would you take time this week, even in this moment right now, even as we sing these next songs to say, God, I long for your glory to be more present in my life. And I know and I trust and I believe that you want me to have real life and to have the peace that can only come from you. Jesus, today as we look to you and tune our ears to hear your, your truth and your word, would you help us to to let it sink in? Would you give us the space to take a deep breath and to pause and to get a little bit of that taste of Sabbath rest, even if it's just a few moments, in the quietness of just you and us, that we can turn our attention, our minds, and to set them on you? And so would you help us do that even in this next moment, whether we're driving in a car, whether we're sitting on a couch, wherever we are, as we're, we look to these next new songs that we're going to sing, and, and would you help to draw our attention to you and orient our mind to you, that we would be a very small representation of the glory of you, God, that we would be a human being living alive that has a vision of who you are.